0: Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Karina Biemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right, daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, stay safe. There were two more murders, fifteen miles we'll away. When they arrived, they found the telephone and electricity lines described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religion. Morning, a of murders. Sometimes it's hard to know where a prolific serial killer began. Sometimes it takes years to connect victims and find their first kill. On October 30th, 1966, a young girl was murdered after a late night study session at her campus library. A girl who, many believe, is the Zodiac's first true victim. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Sherry Jo Bates was born on February 4, 1948, and when she was about 9 years old, her family moved to California so her father could work at the Corona Naval Ordnance Laboratory. She would spend the rest of her life in California, living a life most would consider idyllic. She was an honor student, a cheerleader, a member of the student government, as well as being described as well-liked, sweet, and outgoing. Her goal in life was to become a flight attendant. From what I could tell, the only setback in her life was her parents' divorce in 1965. When she graduated high school, Sherry went to Riverside City College, got a job at a bank, lived with her dad, and saved up money to buy her prized 1960 lime green Volkswagen Beetle. She had an incredible future ahead of her, a future that was about to be snuffed out. On October 30th, 1966, Sherry and her father attended Mass at their local Catholic church before heading to breakfast. When they came home, Sherry decided she needed to go to the campus library to put in a little extra work on a research paper and do some studying. She called a friend and asked if she wanted to come, but she declined, so Sherry left on her own, leaving a note for her father so he knew where she went. Witnesses say they saw her arrive at Riverside City College around 6.10 p.m. These witnesses would also later state that her beloved Volkswagen was being followed by a bronze Oldsmobile, though this seemed hardly nefarious at the time. Sherry ended up studying at the library until closing time at 9 p.m. Sherry's father waited the entire night for his daughter. And when she still wasn't home when the sun came up, he called Sherry's friend who said, as far as she knew, Sherry was just there to study and had no plans to stay away from home. He immediately called the police and filed a report around 5.43 a.m. Forty-five minutes later, a groundskeeper at the college found the body of Sherry Jo Bates. She was sprawled face down on a gravel path near the library lot where she was parked. She was still clothed, though soaked in blood, and her bag still had its contents, meaning this was not a rape nor a robbery. But what did happen was that the young 18-year-old girl was stabbed repeatedly in the chest and left shoulder and suffered from several slash wounds to her face and neck, severing her jugular and larynx and almost decapitating her. Sherry's head also showed signs that it had been kicked repeatedly throughout the attack. There is no doubt that this attack was brutal and vicious police could tell that whoever the attacker was, he more than likely walked away from the scene with a number of injuries inflicted by Sherry. There were very few clues left at the scene, but one was a paint-splattered Timex wristwatch and a footprint that matched shoes produced by Leavenworth prisoners and sold to military outlets. There were also numerous fragments of skin and brown hair recovered from under her fingernails. Within 24 hours of her body being found, investigators interviewed 75 witnesses, including students and military personnel from a nearby Air Force base, in an effort to piece together what could have happened that night. This is when they heard about the Oldsmobile following Sherry's car into the school, and when they heard from a fellow student about a man lurking in the shadows across the street from Sherry's car. Though she did say that, when passing him, they exchanged pleasantries. There were also two testimonies that claimed to hear a woman scream around 10.15 p.m. Despite all of their interviews, by November 6th, all but two individuals who were on campus that night had been traced and eliminated as suspects. Not only that, but they had a hard time fitting Sherry into the mold of a victim. She had no known enemies and nothing in her background to make her a risk for a random non-sexual attack. Investigators, of course, checked her car, which was parked about 75 yards from where her body was found. What they found left them scratching their heads. The ignition wiring of the car had been deliberately pulled loose and the passenger window rolled down partly. Inside were the library books Sherry had checked out and several smeared greasy palm prints covered the outside of the car leading investigators to theorize that whoever attacked Sherry had disabled her car beforehand. So, when she got inside and tried to start it, the man offered her help before luring her from her vehicle. Despite all of this information and all of the police work done, the case seemed to be cooling rapidly. Then, one month after her murder, two identical typed letters arrived at the Riverside Police Headquarters and the offices of the Press Enterprise these letters detailed a likely scenario as to how Sherry was lured away and murdered. The details matched much of what the police had already theorized, some facts they didn't even know, and some that only the killer could have known. The author went on to say that Sherry was going to, quote, pay for the brush-offs that she had given me during the years prior. When forensics tested the DNA from the envelope years later, it did not match the DNA found under Sherry's fingernails. On April 30th, 1967, the press enterprise printed an update about the case. The following day, both the police and Sherry's father received a handwritten note from the alleged killer. This one said, Bates had to die, there will be more. At the bottom of each letter was an indecipherable number, or a letter, that was either a 2 or a Z. Does all this sound familiar? This is the exact MO that the Zodiac Killer, active from 1968 to 1969, would later adopt. This led to a hypothesis among many that Sherry was the first victim of the elusive Zodiac Killer. A practice kill, if you will. That he may have actually known her, a fact that cannot be said about his other victims, and that she had slighted him in some sort of way. That he killed her and got a taste for murder. One potential clue supporting the Zodiac theory was the discovery of a macabre poem scratched into a desk at the college. It was found six months after Sherry's murder and contained graphic references to repeated assaults upon young women with a bladed weapon. And later, handwriting experts stated that the handwriting from the desk, the letters sent to the press and Sherry's father, and the man responsible for the infamous Zodiac letters were all one and the same. And a later Zodiac letter stated, I do have to give police credit for stumbling upon my Riverside activity, but they are only finding the easy ones. The Riverside police, however, have a different suspect, a man referred to only as Bob Barnett, that Sherry and Bob were in a relationship that had gone south and sent Bob into a jealous rage, but by the time they went to find Bob, he had left the country. When he finally came back into town, they were able to get his DNA, and it was not a match for what was found under Sherry's fingernails. The library staff at the college were certain it was a man named Ross Sullivan, a guy who gave everyone the creeps and talked about controlling his impulses to harm others. But police said he had a solid alibi. To this day, the case of Sherry Joe Bates is still unsolved and considered Riverside's most infamous cold case. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on October 31st. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Morning Cup of Murder. This daily true crime podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching Morning Cup of Murder. I'd love it if you stopped by and said hi. Stay safe.